looking at Esther chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Stronger than darkness and new every morn, our sins they are many, his mercy is more. Esther chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubine. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king. She asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. But that's not all. I want you to turn Pew Bibles again to Matthew 7 and verses 1 through 5, and that's page 965 in your Pew Bibles. Sermon on the Mount, page 965, Matthew 7, 1 to 3. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice there's no doubt there's a speck in the brother's eye, but there's a, a priority here. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever, to which you say together, Hallelujah, and thanks be to God. Our God, we've sung of sin and grace, and we are going to hear of sin and grace Turn us all to the sin-bearer and the grace-giver, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we confirm our desire to be heard as we say together, 
Amen. Amen. Please be seated. You want to have your Bibles open to uh, to page 484 and following, but I think you probably want to use the page 10 for your notes. (laughs) Today we're going to look at what is the greatest moral dilemma in the Old Testament. Abraham faced something similar when he was called to sacrifice his son Isaac, but that wasn't a moral dilemma. That was a faith challenge. This is a moral dilemma, and it is, I think, the greatest in the Old Testament. Here's the story. The king has gotten back from King Ahasuerus, king of Persia, the greatest empire of that day that stretched, as as you've learned, all the way from India to Ethiopia, and uh, he's devastated. He's lost a lot of his army in Greece, and his counselors probably to curry favor with him. Uh, They know he really wants, he needs uh, another queen. Uh, Vashti's been deposed because of her insubordination, and so they propose a great Persian beauty pageant. And in that beauty pageant, the whole of that of that empire is going to be vacuumed for the most beautiful women for the Miss Persia event, the Miss Persia beauty pageant. All the most beautiful women of that area are called. And what's very interesting is, is that the language throughout, especially chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, they're caught up in this. They are brought. They're, they're passive in these things. And of course, uh, Esther is here. The, the language in the text is she was she was a real knockout. She was absolutely beautiful, drop dead gorgeous, and uh, she's getting called. And what's very interesting, she's not called to deny the faith that she would have as a Jewess. She's called to conceal it, to not tell people that she was a Jewess. And what is Esther to do? She is caught up in this event. In Persia, when you were called, you went. When you were summoned, you went. Or you're dead meat. And so Esther, as this drop-dead gorgeous female, is caught up to this harem, waiting her turn to, quite frankly, go to bed with the pagan king. And I want to ask you if you're ready to cast stones at Esther. This chapter is full of moral dilemmas. This whole section. Are you ready to cast stones at Esther? I think by the time we get done, you'll be looking at beams in your own eye first. But let, let's, look, let's look at the text. And, and first of all, what's here is a year in the life of Esther and all of these other women. The turn comes for each of these young women who have been brought to go to this harem in Susa, the capital of Persia, and the time comes for each one individually to go in to King Ahasuerus. And that, there's a double entendre in that, folks. It's not just a matter of being in the bedroom for him, but there's, there's sexual intimacy in each one of these things. And it's interesting that Herodotus, the Greek, the Greek historian of that period, commented that King Ahasuerus was, we call him a sex fiend in our culture today. He was, he was, he was very, very much engrossed in females. So their, their turn, 
and that, that comes after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying. In other words, not regular and that was common in the empire, but this was the pattern for this six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. And so that's the beauty treatment. Now, it's very interesting that Persia was known for its exports of what we would call essential oils and 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 spices that were used as perfumes. And I kind of, I, I was intrigued. I'm not, first of all, a guy that looks at perfume, but I do have a wife, and once in a while you want to get it. It was interesting. I looked at some of the names of perfumes, and I tried to imagine what it would be like in that culture. You can imagine in Persia, you're going back several hundred years before the birth of Christ. Uh, Yves Saint Laurent. I don't think they had their equivalent of it, but Yves Saint Laurent, luxury rose would be one of these things that they had. Or Versace, beige crystal ladies. How's that one? That would be one that they would use for the beautifying treatment. Or Gucci, how about Persian bloom? There you go, that one would fit for this one. Or Dior's, hypnotic, hypnotic, hypnotic poison? (laughs) I wouldn't want that. Wouldn't want Margaret to have to wear that one, hypnotic poison. And uh, some of the other ones in, in here, I won't go into all. Oh, yeah, uh, Chanel. You have to have Chanel in there. Um, you would have the, uh, oh, this would be the, the Persian Mademoiselle. There you go. We we're kind of making names. But these are the kinds of things that were very common. They would have had their own names for them. Uh, the essential oils of jasmine and rose and lilac. And can't you smell all of these things? and gardenia, and violet. And what's very interesting is we actually have found, again, you can go to the Louvre in, in, uh, in, in France to see these, but they have these, these spice, spice boxes, actually, uh, which were used for this purpose, and they would put the spices in and burn them, and the ladies receiving their beautifying treatment would actually, uh, with just a robe on them, would... would, would place their bodies over these things and over a period of of doing this for days and weeks and months this was a year those scents would actually become part of their of their skin and they also and it's interesting the portion of food see we tend to think oh well the keto diet (laughs) or the mediterranean diet i guess would be closer that we think differently than they did at that time you didn't want a uh, a string bean looking woman uh, you wanted a woman that had a, a little bit of mass to her and and uh, and so that diet was really to kind of excuse the expression fatten them up a little bit but that's that's the kind of treatment that you got for a full year with all of the people here and then and then what's that for in verses 13 and 14 when the young woman who's ready goes to the king She's given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And there's all kind of speculation about what that is. Some say it was jewelry. I guess that would make sense. Or what would be the equivalent of lingerie. That would make sense as well. But I think most say probably some kind of an aphrodisiac. uh, Something that they could drink uh, that would make the king especially uh, desirous of the woman. And she desirous of the man. Perhaps even perhaps even to numb their sensibilities a bit, I don't know. Uh, but, but whatever they desired, she was given to take with her from the harem where the women were to the king's palace. And then in the evening, again, double entendre, she would go in 
and in the morning she would return into the second harem. She's had her turn. She's in the custody of this other eunuch, Sha'ash Gaz, who was in charge of the concubines. And, and she didn't go back. She waited. She didn't go back unless the king called her because, again, uh, the important member Vashti, Vashti disobeyed. These young ladies were expected to be submissive in what is done here. And, of course, you can figure out what this is all about. Let me make a note here. Paganism in ancient and modern forms horribly suggests, subjects women. The effect of the curse is the woman's desire will be to dominate the husband, but he will tyrannize over her. And unchecked by grace, that's exactly what happens to women in any culture. It would take the anti-Ahasuerus. Remember, counterfeits are a big theme in the book of Esther. And Ahasuerus is the counterfeit of a loving, gracious, self-giving husband who takes a bride. He's exactly the opposite. But thank the Lord, you've got a redeemer. And what does he do? He not only in holiness, in love, and respect and grace takes a bride to be his own and he is protective of her and does not violate her and that one who would come into the world to do that don't ever forget this began to transform cultures and he's still doing it it is the christian faith it is christ and his grace that really began the liberation of women. And it is, incidentally, we could look at it the other way. Why is it that in our culture, women are once again being subjected to the worst kind of bondage? And that's what it is, be honest. It's because of the decline of the work of grace in Jesus Christ, the great anti-Ahasuerus. But, but anyway, that, that's, that's the situation here. Now, let's go to Esther, because this book is about Esther and other characters. It's Esther's turn now in verses 15 to 18, and this is about 478 years before the birth of Christ. Okay, so roughly in that, because they give a date in here, and we can pretty well calculate it. Um, so here's Esther, and verse 15. Esther's turn comes, and notice that she is, we reminded again, she is a Jewess. She is the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king. Now notice, notice, notice. You, see, you got little pictures of Esther here. She doesn't. She's not demanding. She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Not just what she wanted. She listened. Notice that Vashti didn't. Okay. Esther apparently asked Haggai, what should I bring? What, what, whether it's garments, whether it's jewelry, whether it's an aphrodisiac, what, what would be the best thing? And she shows, for want of a better word, that submissiveness, that gentle and quiet spirit that is a mark of what God does in his people. And now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And we don't know what that was, but for a year, you can imagine they see this absolutely 
beautiful woman who is apparently beautiful inside and out, submissive, sweet, gracious, kind, obliging, and and unlike whatever other marks are in the women, that internal and external beauty were showing to all around them. We don't know all the specifics, um, but we do know that, that she found favor with all of those people that were there. And I just have to add at this point, this is true of Christian women today. I, I'm struck with the hardness that comes in younger and older women when they flout God's will for their lives. They give their bodies to be abused by the same sex or another sex. They allow themselves to become codependents on someone else. They're jilted, they're hurt, sometimes they're beaten, and you see it in the hardened exterior that comes. Sin, folks, brings ugliness. Whereas with godly women, younger and older, you see it. There's a peace, there's a contentment, there's a joy, there's a delight most of the time. But there is something, I don't know how to describe it, and there's a lot of these things in in the book of Esther, you don't know exactly how to describe it. Favor, why does it come? I don't know, but it's it's because of God. But it's there, and, and they saw, all the people saw, there was something about Esther. And that paves the way for when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace, and see here you know the time, the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won, and these are the two Hebrew words for finding favor. One is grace. Grace is, is basically someone Someone commits himself. God commits himself to us in grace to give himself to us. And so King Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus is one who wants to give himself for this woman who has won his heart. And also favor in the eyes, in the same word that's used before, he found, she found favor she saw in her, in that, however he saw it, there was something way beyond any of the other women who were there. So she won favor in his sight more than all the other virgins, and apparently the beauty pageant stopped there. He set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. Isn't that something? He, he did love her in that way. He wanted, he wanted something to honor her as his queen. And I love this because I wish some of our politicians, especially in New York, would pay attention to it. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces, which a king did. When the, king, when the king was blessed, when the king was happy, when the king had victories, you didn't raise the taxes, but you cut back on them. And also he gave gifts with royal generosity, whatever, whatever those were. But that's, that's Esther's turn. And people say, well, what, what, what would Esther be thinking when she came to the king? Uh, she wasn't to make known the fact that she was a Jewess, And you really can't imagine, even with propriety, remember, you weren't to marry 
a pagan, and you were not to have sex outside of marriage. And I rather doubt that when Esther's turn came with the king, uh, she said, ah, let's just sit on this gold couch and keep a respectful six inches, and let's just spend the night telling stories to one another. But I don't think she did that. I don't think she would have found favor with the king. The only conclusion you can come to is that she gave herself heartily to that tryst with Ahasuerus. That's the only conclusion that you can come to in this. But regardless, the point is it happened. And remember what Esther's about. God has written the script. God is in back of every single event, even falls. Even so, it doesn't mean God is the author of sin, but God is in back of those events in his decree. Now notice how God was at work. Number one, the king was one. He was captivated with this Miss Persia, captivated, no doubt, with her external beauty, captivated with the effects of all of the oils and the perfumes, captivated certainly with her grace, her kind. There was something about her different than the pagans, even though she never admitted that she was a Jewish. We can, we can only speculate. But again, as with Christian women today, there's something that will attract even a man who hates God. Especially because a man who hates God, who's always trucking with women who hate God, see an ugliness. And they'll see a beauty in a Christian woman and they'll use it. But whatever. The king is one. But Esther is the one who wins. She's now the new queen of Persia, and that's going to make a tremendous, it's going to make all the, literally, it's going to make all the difference in the universe as you're going to find that. Okay, so you come, but what do you, what do, you do with this? What do, you, what do you do with this moral dilemma? Folks, it's, it's not much different than for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in Islamic nations. You make known the fact that you're a Christian. You worship in a church. You don't worship at the mosque. And you're liable to have your head cut off. That's the real world that not a few of our brothers and sisters are in. And you have a similar kind of a situation here where Esther is swept under these things. Now, now, there's different responses people can give. They can say, well, remember, the ends justify the means. Look at the good that's going to come to all, to all of Israel as a result of that. Don't ever use that argument. Shall I do evil that good may come? This is sin here. So don't use that argument. She flouts all of her background as a Jewess. I can't imagine the in the harem, she would have said, oh, uh, it's the Sabbath, I can't be involved in this beautifying procedure on the Sabbath. I don't think she said that. She didn't even mention that she's a Jewess. Dietary laws? Uh-uh. 
No, no, no. They're trying to fatten her up for that occasion. Holy days, no mention of it. And even the fact that the Old Testament and Deuteronomy had condemned, in no uncertain terms, the Lord's people marrying outside the faith to pagans, even that, all of that is flouted. And what's very interesting is if you go ahead about 40 years after this, Ezra, who was also in captivity and probably knew about this since she was the queen, Ezra goes to the land of Israel and helps the people understand the law again. And two chapters in that book are given to his condemning in no uncertain terms the marriage of the Israelites to the pagans, to the point that he called for the Israelites to divorce their wives. Now, I'm not going to get into all the issues of application for that. That's not the point. But this was a raging issue at the time. And here, there's no moral condemnation given in this text. She flouts her background and does what is later condemned. Now, what do you do with that? Well, you can't use Esther as a model for your daughters or your granddaughters. That, folks, is why be very careful the way you use the Old Testament as examples of what to do or not to do. Can you really imagine singing Dare to Be an Esther? <laughs> not going to work, folks. And, and that, is, that is the dilemma that's in here. So how do, you, how do you deal with this? Remember that Esther is given two names. She has, her, her, her Jewish name is Hadassah. Hadassah, which, which is a term for, really a term for beauty, a, a term for luxury, generosity, named after an evergreen tree that, that smelled so beautiful and was very attractive, okay? So, but her Persian name was Esther, goddess of love and of war, which is going to come to bear in this text. And that gives us a clue, because rarely do you have two names given to people. There's another place we have it. There's one in the New Testament, we'll come to it later. One in the Old Testament, Daniel and his friends. Daniel and his friends are given Babylonian names. But notice the difference. They stand, they don't disguise what they are, and they stand faithfully to the Lord. And Esther does exactly the opposite. Because Esther is an exile. And she's having to live in two worlds, exactly the same way you and I do. Exactly. She's not in her element. She's not in the land. She's not in the place where the ritual laws and the moral laws are to some extent going to be upheld. It's exactly the opposite. Persia didn't care about those laws. Sound familiar? That's why the scriptures speak of our being in the world and not of it. Now, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Let me ask you some questions, as I've asked myself. Have you ever concealed your faith so you can avoid trouble? Be honest. Doesn't have to be at work, doesn't have to be at school. How about your neighborhood? Have you ever concealed your faith 
so you can avoid trouble or to get something you really, really want. I really, really want this job. And I must work on Sunday to have it. We've got a lot of Esthers in our culture. Do you ever use or have you ever used your looks, your skills, your intelligence to get ahead regardless of what that means for your convictions as a Christian? You need to do a paper at school and it has to do with what you really believe about gender about sexuality, about the unborn. And you be honest with those things. And you flunk. Have you ever compromised your faith? Not denied it, but just concealed it? What about loving the world? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And James, you adulterers and adulteresses, you Esters, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Brothers and sisters, I, I shrink when I think of what other generations who understood worldliness better than we do would say about my lifestyle. For example, our possessions. So easy to love those more than God, and that, as you're going to find out in the Sunday school class, that's adultery, folks. That is spiritual adultery. It's loving part of the creation more than the creator. What about your time? Your time, is it really all the Lord's, however it's to be used, or do you steal it for yourself? That's spiritual adultery. Our pleasures. The Sunday stealers are so many things, whether it be the Super Bowl or the Academy Awards. Isn't it interesting how these things are done on Sunday? Mm-hmm. And Christian churches will even have parties to celebrate these things. Friendship with the world, an enmity with God. What about our values and our standards? The erosion among professed Christians when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to honesty, when it comes to generosity, when it comes to love. Make a whole lot of esters in the camp. Mention the Lord's Day Sabbath. It's interesting that the Lord 
Remember, Jesus didn't say the Sabbath is made for Jews. He said the Sabbath is made for man. Why is that? God, God graciously says you stop one day in seven, number one, so you don't kill yourself by overwork. Number two, so that you will reflect upon me and get a reality check. Because if you don't, if you don't, if you forsake that mercy, you will go to everlasting destruction because you loved something better than my mercy in the Lord's day. We got a lot of Esthers, awful lot of Esthers in our world culture. And promiscuity of the eyes. You can't watch even a conservative network or even get its headlines on your phone. But every third or fourth story on a conservative network has a picture of a woman who would have been on the cover of Playboy magazine 30 years ago. And how easy it is how easy it is to want to dally in that for a while. Promiscuity of the eyes. See, folks, that's why Jesus spoke about plucking beams out of our own eyes. It was interesting when... This gives you... Having people from other cultures into your home really helps give you a window on your own culture. Years ago, when Sham's father, Emmanuel, was with us one of the summers, I took him to what I call the shrine, Roosevelt Field in Nassau County. You have the order of worship at the beginning as you come in, all the different stores that you can come to. You have the different parts of the liturgy. You can go to the perfume store. You can go to the apple store. You can go to the food court. See, they even have their own clone of the Lord's Supper. They got the food court. You've got the benediction from the clerk. You got the offering. You use it with your credit card. You got the benediction from the clerk. Have a good day. Okay, so we'll call, it, call it the shrine. But we went there one day. Emmanuel from Eritrea was stunned when we walked by. Victoria's Secret. And he said, we wouldn't even allow that in our country. See, folks, and we don't think twice about it. Esther's, Esther's, Esther's. That's why, again, don't, don't cast the first stone, folks. We pluck beams out of our own eyes and be honest. None of us is as good as we like to make ourselves out to be. None of us. So, what do you do with this? Esther sinned. Period. And that's very wrong. God is in back of all these things, and without ever being the author of sin, what he's doing is very, very wrong. Right. And you'll find out more as the book of as the book of Esther unfolds. And I want you to think with me a little bit about part of what that means. 
go ahead about 478 years from when Esther was crowned as queen. And there's the birth of someone who, quite frankly, is put in exile. He is brought from the glories of a perfect heaven to be in exile for 33 years in a very, very fallen world, in a world of tremendous temptation. And isn't it interesting, he's given two names by Matthew. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, his human name, because he'll save his people from their sins. He's given two different names. And what also is interesting is he's a very unlikely person. Unlike Esther, he has no form or appearance that we should look upon him at all. And he's hardly given a beauty treatment over all of that year. Very, very unlikely candidate, though, as Esther was as a Jewess. He's in Nazareth, the other side of the tracks. And I find it also very interesting that like Esther, he has an adoptive father named Joseph who raises him and protects him. Very, very interesting. And he also faced temptation as he was in exile in the world. It was not to be of it. This is very real. That would come 478 years after Esther's temptation. And the devil says to Emmanuel, Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world and their glory. Esther, you can be queen of the greatest empire in the world. All you need to do is worship me. All you need to do is go to bed with the king. Jesus didn't do the equivalent of going to bed with the king. He said, you get behind me, Satan. And here's what's interesting in that. Jesus was, like Esther, like Esther, he was faced with the challenge of, let's call it compromise, okay? The compromise is this. You go ahead and you fall down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. That, that's, that's if you give in. If you don't give in, you'll face suffering that makes all the sufferings of all people and all nations and all of human history to seem like the light of a match rather than the hell it will be. What's it going to be? What's it going to be? And the Lord Jesus resists perfectly, and he would, in his whole life, continued to resist until he came to what's represented here, the cross, where, pay attention, Jesus took the penalty of the sin of the compromise of Esther and you. That's how... That's how glorious the grace of God in the gospel is. And here's what's amazing. Because he didn't give in, because he resisted temptation, he's given far more than Queen Esther gets. 
Notice the devil has said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world in their glory. Incidentally, he was a liar. He couldn't do it anyway. That was a temptation. Jesus is raised from the dead and he's ascended into heaven. And he's given all authority in heaven and on earth. Something far, far, far greater. And brothers and sisters, that's also the lesson for us to, yes, to resist temptation. So, so difficult. But the end result is far, far, far better as it was for the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is your model, folks. Esther isn't. Okay, not there to be an Esther. Not even there to be a Daniel. But follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that folks, means there's hope for all Esthers. When you see yourself in Esther and you don't cast stones at her, you say, Lord, there's help for me. No, no, no. I, I'm not going to do evil that good may come. I hope you don't. But Lord, I'm going to look to you for strength. I'm going to look to you for grace. I'm going to look to you for forgiveness. There's hope for all of us Esthers <laughs> in this passage in the Scripture. See, the issue in the passage the issue isn't sin, it's God's sovereignty. The issue isn't promiscuity, the issue is God's providence. And without ever making right, wrong decisions, God uses those, and his plan isn't thwarted by those. See the fine line? You've got to watch. Shall I do evil that good may come? God forbid. But isn't that great? Blunders, mistakes, foolish things that we do, slips, stumbles, falls. The Lord God is not thwarted by any of those things. And without ever making them in themselves right, he turns all things for good. God willing, in September, we're going to do a, a it's not really a replacement for the seasonal concert, but we're going to have a, a Judy Rogers reunion concert here. We'll put all of our energies and learning songs into that, and especially remembering uh, Judy's first, uh, and they'll be here, incidentally, God willing, uh, Judy's first CD, Why Can't I See God?, which is all based on the catechism. And there's one little stanza some of you may remember, singing about God's sovereignty. And it goes, God never changes, he remains the same. He has a plan to glorify his name. Now listen, if we should stand or even if we fall, God is working out his purpose in it all. Right? And so that's the lesson that you learn from here. Now what does that mean? Folks, be holy, okay? The scriptures say that. But be real. Be real. Be Romans 7 real. The good things I want to do, I find myself not doing them. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing them. Don't rest in that. Be repentant. And then you rest. Then you rest in the Christ, who frankly, because humanly speaking of Esther, he came into history to redeem us. It's a glorious, glorious theme. Okay, so again, it's not sin, but sovereignty. Not promiscuity, but providence. Now, there's another character in Esther. <laughs> you almost forget about him at this point. And his name is Mordecai. And Mordecai's around at this point. 
I'm sure he was quite anxious when Esther's time came for her to go to be with the king. And he is walking around. He's hanging around out near the king's court. And he overhears an argument. He happens to overhear an argument by a couple of people who are contriving to kill King Ahasuerus. And he reports that to Queen Esther. And because he did, that sets into motion a chain of events that would lead to a world that will never, ever be the same again. It's really absolutely remarkable. Well, we'll learn about that, Mordecai. And there's another character we've got to introduce in the story. And it's not just their names. It's part two of a big family battle. Let's pray. Our Lord, we bless you for your word and its honesty. God, please, don't ever let us abuse grace so that we condone sin. Again, we say with Paul, shall I do evil that good may come? God forbid it. But Lord, give us also a holy realism, such as Paul has when he writes Romans 7. And may we be reminded, our God, that even though we come before you with shame of face when we fall, there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And you have the most amazing ways to cut straight paths with crooked sticks, just like you did with Esther. We pray, our God, that you will as it were, give us a fresh baptism of your grace to be like the only one who is our model, Christ Jesus the Lord. Amen. Amen Amen and amen.